Can you hear me now? Yeah. All right. Good morning. All right. Uh, it's good to see almost everyone I saw yesterday, the beautiful worship service and wedding. Um, yeah, so this morning we're going to talk about the transfiguration of our Lord. And uh, what a glorious event that is. I want to go ahead and dive in, but I know as tradition we're going to read our text. Do we have that up? All right. So we're going to read it all together. That's right. Yeah, Luke 9, 28 through 36. And here we go. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke with his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything what they had seen. Lord, we thank you for being able to worship this morning. Help us see your glory as we explore your text today, Lord. Help give me the words. Help give us the hearts to hear as we aim to worship and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start. So now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. All right, we're going to focus on this for a little bit before we get into the meat and potatoes of the, all the, the big event. So after these sayings, what sayings? It was a couple weeks ago, so I know we had a Celebrate Life service, and then before that we had the, 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 the previous passage leading up to this with a curious little statement right before we enter into this that I think is key to our passage today. So for context, we'll go back. Starting in Luke 9, 18 through 21, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, specifically not Elijah, by the way, and then Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. In 9.22, Jesus says, He's the Son of Man. Uh, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Verses 23 through 26, Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. He says, To be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. In Luke 9.27, though, it's a little stepping stone between the last passage and this passage. It's a weird sort of thing Jesus says, I think. 
says, Truly I tell you, some of you are standing here today will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And then, about eight days later, after these sayings, I think this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus just made eight, about eight days prior. You guys see that? We all know the spoiler alert. We just read the passage. We know what happens, what's about to happen. I think they just saw a piece of the kingdom of God. Okay? And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I think when he says, after these sayings, I think that's what he's talking about. Luke's tying it together. He's like, Jesus just talked about this a couple days ago. He was saying that some of us wouldn't die before we see the kingdom of God, and then this crazy thing happened to us. Okay. Now, what about the eight days? Because if you have some maybe atheist friends or any you know, Google warriors online, they'll say, ah, Matthew and Mark say six days. Six days later, all this happened. But Luke says approximately eight or about eight, depending on your translation. Contradiction. What do you say to that? Is it a contradiction? They say six. Luke says about eight. Well, it's not a contradiction. Because he says it's about eight days. And in the Jewish time, um, at that time, first century, uh, Jews, it, was, it was normal to use approximation for one. And he also admits it is an approximation. But it depends on how you count. Because if Jesus says these things on this day, and then the events happen on this day, and then there's six days in between, that's about eight days. It depends on... What source? Luke is getting his gospel from many different eyewitness accounts and different sources, and it depends on who he's hearing it from and how they're recounting it. It's about eight days. And for him, that's accurate enough, and for his contemporaries, that is accuracy. Okay? So don't let people tell you that it's, a, um, that it's a contradiction. As a matter of fact, what Luke is trying to point out, I think, is that the, there's, it's not a contradiction, it's a direct fulfillment of prophecy, actually. Jesus just prophesied. Some of you standing here today are going to see the kingdom of God. You won't taste death. Until then. Moving on to his inner circle, we see that Jesus brought up three. Okay, another curious part of this passage. I'm just going to pause right here talk a little bit about this. I don't want to gloss over it. We see the perfect disciple maker making disciples. Okay, and we, we want to calculate or at least take note of all the moves that Jesus makes. Okay? We see that he took three out of the twelve, and we know that he had many more than that that would follow him. But this is called Christ's inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John, the inner circle here. Jesus was efficient with his time, his intention, and how he made disciples. He poured into only a select few among many followers. So I was looking at the passage and trying to like get... Some, some things that Jesus did in this little pericope here, this little section of Scripture. One thing we see Jesus doing is he's praying in solitude and praying with others. And I'll say this, and given the, the depth of this text today, we don't, um, we're not going to explore the riches of prayer. But I do want to say a couple things at least. If our Lord is praying during his ministry and before doing things, and I think for other reasons we will get into a little bit later. 
if our Lord's praying, how important, if he found it important to pray, how important should we pray? And I think that's one of the things the church really lacks in today, and it's it's almost strange when we find a, a Christian fervent in prayer, and we always look and say, man, I wish I could be like that. Well, you can. The good news is, is you can. But we see the Lord praying in solitude and with others, and I, you know, imagine the Lord, the thing is the Lord taught us how to pray, and He teaches His disciples a couple chapters later in Luke. He teaches His disciples to pray, and we all know, you know, the Lord's Prayer. And, and, I, and you know, flat, uh, flash forward to the prayer that He's going to do in the garden, I think, and He's going to talk about His departure, what He's about to do on the cross. And I think it's going to be a similar prayer. Lord, let Your will be done. That's what he prays in God, but he teaches his disciples, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same prayer. It's the prayer that we need to be praying. Help my will align with your will, Lord. We're trying to bring Eden back to earth. Heaven on earth. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Lord, help me be a citizen of heaven here on earth. Help me do that. So I need to recognize the supremacy of God in supplication. Submit to His supremacy and submit to supplication to the Lord. And our supplications can be asking about all sorts of things. But I think at the heart of supplication, we need to ask, Lord, help me be more like Your Son. So Jesus was praying. He was also, I put in here, reading and teaching the Word. Well, He is the Word. But we, did, we just came off of a, a teaching that He just did, now entering into this passage. And we know Sermon on the Mount and uh, any you know, red-letter text Bible, you'll see that Jesus, of course, was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was the expressed Word of God. So us, we need to be reading the Word so we can teach the Word. That's what we do as disciples, as followers of Jesus. Jesus, we see here, was intentional with His time. I already talked about that a little bit. He was intentional with His time. He brought the three out of the twelve, and he chose the twelve out of the many, and he dealt with them separately on their terms. And I know in Jesus' humanity, I think he knew that it was, quite frankly, impossible to pour into each individual the way they needed to be poured into. So he was intelligent, full of wisdom in how he counseled people and in the time he did. And he was also intentional in doing it. And I think with our busy society and our culture, that's a very difficult thing to do to set our calendar aside for others. Jesus is a perfect model of that. The last thing I noticed here was if we're modeling after the, the perfect disciple maker, he, it was a living a life worthy of example for people to follow. Of course, Jesus lived the perfect life. And what we need to do is is follow after Him in discipleship. So what is discipleship, though? Well, simply put, I try to think of a definition. I put here, following Jesus and helping others follow Jesus as well. That's what discipleship is, if you want to distill it down to one phrase, in my estimation. Following Jesus and helping others follow Jesus as well. And what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, Right? So first, you have to be a disciple to make disciples. Don't you? Right? You have to be a disciple to make disciples. So I came up with a little system that I think helps a disciple grow and helps a disciple disciple. 
okay? And I call it the IPO of Christian discipleship. IPO. If Ryan was here, I think he would appreciate this. The IPO, input, processing, and output. Okay? Input, process, and output. I'm going to say processing. I think it helps a little bit. It's my thing. I made it up. I can do whatever I want. IPO. (laughs) All right. The input, the centrality of the word. We have the word feed us. They had the living word right in, in dwelling amongst them. We have the revealed word of God. It's our source, just the fountain we drink from. So our input is the word of God. We pray the word, we speak the word, we sing the word. We're people of the word. That's our input. Our process is the gospel. It's our processing. Having the word inform your heart and your mind makes us sensitive to where to the spirit to where we're able to interact with the world in a gospel-centric way. I'm going to introduce you guys to one of my this idea that comes from one of my favorite growing uh, my favorite theologian I'm growing to learn more about a uh, Dutch reformed theologian named Herman Herman Bovink. He had this idea keeping the gospel central in your life and what that looks like. And he was known for this idea of having, being a theologian that was both modern and orthodox at the same time. Both modern and orthodox. He was modern because he was a man of his time. He was in the up and up on all things happening in academia, in society, and in culture. He didn't run from that. And he was orthodox because he didn't budge one inch on sound doctrine. Matter of fact, his, most, his biggest, greatest work is the four-volume Reformed Dogmatics. This guy was all about some sound doctrine. Give you a little taste, a little snippet of a, a quote that he has here. Basically, he's talking about how Christians should walk a path in life, sort of having the gospel at the center and sort of being almost like proud to go into any situation to be to have a sense of calmness and not overreacting in opposition to the culture, but entering into it for reform. He was all about that. Some called him even an activist on how he would do that. He would take the gospel wherever he went and push to create real change and meaning for the glory of God. So this is what he says. He says, uh, a Christian should walk in a path that goes into, quote, new situations in a state and society of any philosophy and science of literature and art, of profession and business. They, Christians, they investigate everything and preserve the good. So you go in with all curiosity, with intelligence and understanding and wisdom, and you go in and you seek out what is good and you preserve that part of it. And then Christians, they're no praise singers of the past times. They do not wail idly about the miseries of the present, but they intervene and reform. In other words, we don't sit and complain about our culture and say, oh, it was better back then in Luther's time. No, Bobbing says, no, 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 listen. God put you here and right now in the culture you're in in your time and place with a timeless message. Go. (laughs) Okay. So Bobbing rejected the radical sort of opposition to culture. He called that revolutionary. And instead he adopted a reform 
He said, that's what we need to do. Instead of being revolutionary to culture, we need to reform the culture with the gospel's message. So this idea of being modern and orthodox, I think of being having grace, because you have to have a lot of grace for our culture, right? And truth, orthodox. So that's the P, okay? IPO, input, process, output. Output is constant exercise of faith. The word is the medium by which the gospel takes root in your heart. Input. Processing. And by God's grace, the gospel will produce the fruit of the Spirit. This is your faith exercised produces fruit of the Spirit. That's works. People get all tangled up with that word. Famously, Luther didn't like James, the book of James, because he talked a lot about this. Right, James says, So also faith by itself, it does not have, if it does not have works, is dead. Don't let that... We're not going to preach on James today, but I just want to make a note about that. All the works you did before faith were dead. James is not saying anything new. Think of anything good you did before salvation. It was works without faith, and it was dead. So James is saying, you have to be different now. So we all already agree, even though sometimes we read it and we're like, what is James saying? Did he read Romans? Um, James is saying you have to be reborn, and you should act like it. There should be some, some fruit of the Spirit. Okay? You should be different. Holy, set apart. All right, so we follow Jesus' example. Listen, Jesus just spoke about the cost of discipleship in this prior passage. Um, so that should be something that we, we, we pay attention to, we focus for, and think about how we want to process that in our lives and what that looks like for us in this setting, in this culture, how we can be both modern and orthodox, how we can take the gospel wherever we go. So for discipleship, who's in your inner circle? Jesus had Peter, James, and John. Who's in your inner circle? Their family, their friends, co-workers. How are you doing? Do you have regularity? Do you have intentionality? Here's a good question. Are you growing? Do you pray alone as Jesus did regularly? Do you pray with others as Jesus did regularly? Are you together on the mountaintop? Do you even know when your quote-unquote inner circle is in the mountaintop or if they're in the valley? Do you even have that sort of connection? Some of us are all input. Some of us are all output. All right? Just think about these things. Think about how we can come with gospel centrality and how that should affect our lives. Moving on, starting verse 29. And he was praying, and the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, and we'll stop there. This is the meat and potatoes of today's passage. I know you guys are like, dude, you've been up here for 15 minutes, and we're just now getting to it. Yes, the transfiguration. This word... We get the word uh, metamorphosis from. 
So 12 and under, who can tell me something in nature that metamorphosizes? Anyone? What's up, Lucas? Butterflies. Butterflies, yeah. And what's the, so what does it start off as? Yep. More popularly known as a caterpillar. Then it goes into all those stages. But yes, so we, so we have a caterpillar changes into a butterfly, and we know this is a metamorphosis. And that is an example that we can think of using the etymology of this, this, this word, but it is different. Let's not get that confused. Because God's so holy. Holy means different, right? There's, so we use all these analogies to try to explain how, what God is like, but there's no one-to-one comparison. That's one of the def- definitions of God being holy. God didn't change his nature. Pay attention. He did not change his nature. He did not change his nature. Instead, he revealed or unveiled his glory. This is what this passage is about. His nature never changed. He was never less than. You guys understand that? Here, he's just unveiling his glory. Say, okay, well, that sounds cool, but what is glory? (laughs) What is glory? We say it all the time. It's in this, that word is in this passage several times. What is glory? Well, I looked up some definitions. Um, one theologian, Erickson, says, With respect to God, the word glory does not point to one particular attribute, but to the greatness of his entire nature. Okay, so it's the greatness of his entire... Okay, but still, like, what, what is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? We kind of know what it looks like. John Frame, great theologian, Reformed theologian, RRTS, he says, glory is an adornment. He's, for example, a woman's hair is her crowning glory. A woman is the glory of man. He's getting this from 1 Corinthians 11. God always has the adornment of great light. Light that people often see when they meet God. God's glory was in the cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. It shone on Mount Sinai, and then it came and dwelled in the midst of Israel, and in the tabernacle, and later in the temple. This indwelling presence of God was called, where is she? The Shekinah. It's the Hebrew word. There's other words, uh, kabod, and then in Greek it's doxa, but the Shekinah glory means it was the settling down or the abiding or the dwelling of God's glory. That's... That's what the, the Shekinah glory was, was the indwellment of God's glory. So in the glory, so in the glory, God dwelled as Lord among His people. His glory is a form of that presence. In the New Testament, Jesus is God tabernacling with His people. He is our Shekinah. That's what John Frame says, and I think it's beautiful. I thought about this a lot, and I have a definition for glory I'd like you guys to hear. One's glory is when one's presence is the attestation of worship. Say that again. One's glory is when one's presence is the attestation of one's worship. So when your very presence causes you or defines how worthy you are and causes people to worship you, that's what glory is. Worship is the old English word we get the word worthy from. Okay, worship is the condition of being worthy, having dignity, distinction, honor, renown, or something we ought to pay reverence to. That's what the transfiguration is all about. That's happening right before their very eyes. They're seeing it, and it's the glory of God, and it's, they're amazed. 
We see a likeness with, it says his, his face was shining in Matthew's account of transfiguration. Luke doesn't record that. It says Jesus' his face was shining in Matthew's account. And that's supposed to make us, it's like a hyperlink to what happened with Moses. By the way, this thing is filled with hyperlinks. There's key words that if you click on it, there's a string of Old Testament passages all pointing to God's glory or the Messiah or sonship or all these things. And this is one of them. Where, as we saw on Mount Sinai, when God appeared in the Shekinah glory, it caused Moses' face to shine, whereas Jesus' face was shining. That was like a solar effect. You look at the sun, the sun of God is radiating His glory, whereas with Moses, more of a lunar effect, where it's just the glory of God reflected. Because Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, it doesn't really tell us, but we know that it was uh, in other Gospels, it talks about how their, their linens were white, more white than, or brighter than any earthly launderer can make. And I think the point is, this was a divine glowing, something that no earthly thing could cause, I think is the point. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That language makes us think of like a fingerprint. There's no one else in the world with that fingerprint. If you see Jesus, you see God. Now, why were Moses and Elijah there? This is a strange, strange passage with, filled with lots of little tidbits of mystery. Why are Moses and Elijah there? Well, some say, well, it's the two or three witnesses needed for testimony, found in Deuteronomy 17, 19. Okay, maybe. Say, so, well, both had mysteries surrounding their death. Okay, Elijah's death, 2 Kings 2, caught up in a whirlwind to heaven. Moses says that God buried Moses' body. And then after that, in Jude's, even weirder, it says the archangel Michael and Satan were arguing over Moses' body. So it's like some weird stuff's going on with these two figures. Say, so, okay, well, maybe that's why they're there. Maybe they just didn't die exactly the right, you know, earthly way. Well, how about this? Both of them had mountaintop experiences at Sinai. In his exodus, Moses wanders for 40 years on his way to Sinai. But in Elijah's exodus from Jezebel, he wearily travels 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. Okay. And the, the Lord appears to them both, right? And they both have to cover their face as the Lord passes by. They both had that experience. They're like, okay, I'm starting to see some more and more parallels. This is, maybe we're getting closer to home here. The, a real popular view, and I ascribe to this too. I just don't think it's, it, does, it doesn't hit the spot, but they represent the law and the prophets. Okay, great. What does that show? Continuity between Old Testament and New Testament? We see here, Peter doesn't quite get it yet, and we'll get there in a second, but we see that Jesus is better, he's better Moses and better Elijah. He's a better prophet, a better redeemer. We're talking about that word departure here in a second and, what, and how that points to him being a redeemer. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets, I'm not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I say, well, see, that's Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. There you go. I think that's true, yes. 
But I think this next point, this is what this really does it for me here. They're prominent figureheads in regards to Messiah. The expectations of the Messiah, mistakenly, that's why Peter doesn't get it. They thought that they had a different idea of what the Messiah would do, what the Messiah would be like. And both of these figures were key into the return of the Messiah. Jewish belief expected a Moses-like figure to return. Deuteronomy 18. Uh, Moses talks about that. There's going to be one coming after me. He says, listen to him. And we'll see that language a little bit later. And then they expected an Elijah figure in Malachi 4 to come. And we already know that, that this has transpired. Because who, was, who came in the spirit of Elijah that was the forerunner for Christ? It was John the Baptist, right? And then we see Elijah himself here, too. So it was kind of a fulfillment of both. And then uh, uh, we see uh, later Matthew's gospel transfiguration happens, and then after the fact, Jesus comments on it, and he says, people expected Elijah, and that's already come to pass. So I think these two, they're both pointing to something, and they're both pointing to say, this one is the Messiah. Not me, Moses and Elijah are saying this, not me, but we pointed to all the things we did, our lives, our ministry, pointed to this one. And then we have a voice from heaven saying the same thing. So I think that's why Moses and Elijah are there. A side note on Deuteronomy 18 concerning this Moses-like figure prophesied about the coming Messiah. It says, in 18.22, it says this, when a prophet speaks, this is Moses talking, uh, he's, he's like, how, how will you guys know if he's a true prophet, the one that I'm talking about? He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, uh, that, it, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Uh, and you need not be afraid of him. So he's saying if they speak something, it doesn't come to pass, don't worry about it. That's not the prophet I'm talking about. Well, what just happened? Jesus just spoke a prophecy. It just came true just now. And, and the text says they were afraid. So that's a little side note there. I think we just saw uh, even a, a, a second-tier prophecy get fulfilled in that. All right. text says they were speaking about his departure. This word in the Greek is literally exodus. That's the word used, and it's a strange word to use there. But the authors, Luke, knew what he was doing when he wrote this. He's the better Moses. His exodus is our redemption. Jesus is about to set us free. They were talking about the departure. He has to go down to Jerusalem and fulfill his passion. Jesus is about to set us free from the bondage of sin. He's going to free us from the tyranny of death. He's going to be that Passover lamb as proclaimed by John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah, remember, that was proclaimed. The lamb that takes away the sin of the world. By doing this, Jesus accomplished what Paul talks about in Colossians 2. And you, who were once dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, how? By nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what they were talking about. Move on to our next uh, text. 
starting in verse 33. As they were parting, Peter says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Luke, as he's saying, he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, And then we see this cloud comes and overshadows them, and they were afraid. Again, there's that fear. Moses said, you don't need to fear the, the one coming after me that doesn't have prophecy come true, but the one that does come true, fear him. And of course, the presence of the Lord we see is a, a constant motif and a pattern. Everyone that comes in the presence of God is, is fearful. They were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, told no one in those days anything they had seen. So let's, let's, let's start with what Peter said and how, or, you know, Luke saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. I think there's two things. Why did he say that? Because first, he's equating Jesus with Moses and Elijah. The fact that he wanted to make three tabernacles shows us that Peter didn't really know what was going on. Again, they had a, a false expectation of what the Messiah would be. The other thing is he's thwarting the plan of his departure, Jesus knows what's ahead of him. Peter doesn't quite get it, even though he literally just, in the passage right before, just told him, the Son of Man has to die. And, you know, and Peter's like, okay, whatever, but you're the Messiah, right? And he's like, yeah, but you don't get it. You don't get it still. So he can't just hang out in tents with Moses and Elijah, Peter. I think he's speaking out of ignorance and not sinning here. Yeah, I think he was at a loss for words, and he saw this magnificent thing, the glory of God, and he's just like, we got to keep this going, guys. So Peter's still ignorant of who Jesus is, but we're not. And I think we do the same thing, don't we? We proclaim with our mouth, Jesus, I know you're the Messiah, but then we put him on the shelf with all our other idols, say, you're exactly, let me make a tabernacle for all of you guys. He just made that proclamation that he knew who he was as far as the Messiah, but he, had, he said, yeah, I know you're distinct from Elijah, but I don't, he didn't quite understand that he was divine. He was deity. But we do know this. I think that is, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain is popularly understood as saying GD or oh my God or something like that, and I just don't believe that's the case. I think if you're made in the image of God and you're in Christ and you take his name out and you go live like the world, that's taking his name in vain. I think we can learn from Peter's lesson. Again, I want to make, a, make it clear. I don't think Peter's sinning here, but when we do exactly what Peter's doing, we're sinning, and we're taking the Lord's name in vain. We're confessing who he is, and yet our actions are not... We're just not, we're not recognizing his glory. We're missing it. We profess with our mouths, but then we digress with our lives. And again, so Peter's thwarting God's plan. He misses the point. Jesus just can't hang out on tents. Let's talk about tents for a quick second. So much literature on this about these tabernacles, the tabernacles, these tents, depending on your translation. The tents, a lot of allusions of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. It was a time where, again, little these side allusions to times of Moses and Elijah where they were wandering in the wilderness in their exodus. And they, would, they would do this feast every year, uh, how God preserved them throughout the years is in, in relation to how God preserved them in the wilderness. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. The problem is, he wants to make three of them. We already talked about that. He's putting them on the same, the same level. 
Jesus is the tabernacle. They could they didn't have to mention that Peter said this. I think they included it, and most commentators are, all think this, that this is another hyperlink. Notice the tabernacle language. The tabernacle's right there. The glory cloud comes in what? In the Old Testament, what did it do? It rested, this kind of glory rested in the tabernacle. Okay? And then what is it doing here? After the glory cloud went away, who was the only one left? It was Jesus. It's the glory cloud enveloping the tabernacle. Jesus is God. He's Messiah, but He's God. And you need to listen to Him. It's the glory glory cloud that would envelop and overshadow the tabernacle. Then the Old Testament is now here enveloping and overshadowing Jesus. So who is this Jesus? So we look at this phrase, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. What is this saying? It's similar to the baptism scene. It's actually different in Mark and Luke's account. They have, um, Mark and Matthew's account, they have slight differences, but they're all pointing to the same thing. They all have these key words smashed together. And this is what this is. This is the, the, the voice of God speaking is saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And the Jewish listener would have been like, I know what that means. This is called a Jewish metalipsis. And we know what this is. It's a weird word, but we all know what it is. It's like saying, uh, if I was talking to you about not being late, you know, catching the bus for school or going to work and missing traffic, and I said, uh, i got to get up early to catch the worm. You know what I'm saying, right? Because we have, a, we have, a, we have a, a, a maxim in our culture where it says the early bird gets the worm. But I didn't say that. I said i got to get up early to catch the worm. I used key phrases and key words for your mind to go there, and I used it how I wanted to to make a point. That's what the, Jewish, the, the Bible is full of that. And that was a very common thing that they did in this time. And that, that's what this phrase, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. They're like, I know what that means. This is the Messiah. In Psalm 2, the Messiah is the, the my son language. That title was not God's, my son, God speaking. That's Messiah language. Genesis 22, Isaiah, the, uh, Isaac, the, the beloved son, in Mark's gospel, he uses beloved son. Luke, we don't see that. The son of sacrifice, uh, uh, Genesis 22. And again, the, the biblical writers are... They each use different keywords, but they're trying to make the same point. Isaiah 42, it's the, the, the chosen one. We see my chosen one. In Matthew, it says my well, uh, the one I'm pleased with, I'm well pleased. Both getting it from Isaiah 42, the, the servant, which goes on in Isaiah 53 to be the suffering servant we're all familiar with. Deuteronomy 15, this is copy and paste from Deuteronomy 15 if you're looking at the Greek Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament where Moses was talking about the one coming after him. He says, you need to listen to him. It's the only time a Messiah language is talked about with the command interrogative to listen to him. We see copy and pasted right here. Who is this man? He's not like Moses and Elijah. The messianic language points to his humanity. And the sonship language points to his divinity. So we have someone who is both human and divine. In theology, this two-nature relationship is known as the hypostatic union. Many of us know that. 
fully God and fully man. Not God become man in some cultic way. You've got to be careful with that language. And not man becoming God. It's two natures in one person. Say that again. It's two natures in one person. The Chalcedonian Declaration says this. It's two natures in one person without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? All things were made through Him. There was not one thing made could be made without Him. And Him was life, and life is the light of man. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it or understand it, depending on the translation. It's a weird word that they use there. This word become flesh, what does it do in, in verse 40? It dwells among... By the way, it talks about the light being prophesied by John the Baptist or being uh, uh, preached about by John the Baptist, revealed to the world. Um, this word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God. You can't see God. God is spirit. But, we don't, it doesn't leave us there. It goes on. The one who's at the Father's side, He has made that invisible God known. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. For in Him all the fullness of deity, or the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell. There's that Shekinah language again. That tabernacling language. And through Him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Philippians 2 says this, he says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Again, don't be thrown off by that. The emptying of himself, I think, is the allowance of the addition of human nature, not a loss or a detraction of divinity. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he humbled himself low, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why he entered into humanity for this reason. The Word became flesh for this reason, so he had hands to pierce. So he had a body to be nailed to a cross, to be beaten for us. Hebrews 2 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in those same things. He became something that could be sacrificed that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's better than Moses. Moses freed the captives from slavery in a temporal state. 
Jesus' freedom from slavery is atemporal. It is everlasting. It is eternal. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. As John Calvin says, the threefold ministry of Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He's a better prophet than Moses and Elijah. He's the priest because he's our high priest, as the scripture says, but he's also the tabernacle where they would make the sacrifice. And guess what? He's also the sacrifice. He's all of it wrapped into one. He's also the king. At the mountain, Jesus is revealing his glorious kingship. We saw that in Luke 9, 27, right before this. He said, some of you standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. And he reveals himself. And also Hebrews says this, he says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So no, 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 Peter. He's not the same as Moses and Elijah. And we can't make that same mistake by equating Jesus with something else. We're perverting the supremacy of Christ in our hearts, which, by the way, Peter talks about that, 1 Peter 3, 15. He says, but first sanctify the Lord in your heart. He says, there's, there's competition. There's something that's trying to take your heart all the time. He says, sanctify the Lord in your heart. Sanctify means to set apart. Put, the, put Jesus where He's supposed to be in your heart. Put Him at the top. You shouldn't have, you know, it shouldn't be the fact that Christ has competition for our lives. But it is the fact, sadly. So I ask you, what are the things that fight or that Jesus has to fight for his rightful position in your heart. He says, listen to him. Well, who are you listening to? Are we in the culture, but we can be modern that way, but we can't be orthodox? Power, money, sex, comfort, security, fear. What is listening, by the way? It's walking in obedience of faith. It's a language that Paul uses in Romans. I remember in Marine Corps boot camp, they would say, this is the easiest time of your whole Marine Corps career, is right now. And I was like, you're crazy. (laughs) I hated when they said that. They would say that to us. They said, because all you have to do is listen. That's all you have to do. I was like, okay, yeah, but you're making me do like crazy, insane things. Just do what you're told. That's it. And then the other thing that we'd have to do, sort of piggybacking off that, is we would have to get by our racks and and shout, among other things, but we would have to say, it's the little things, sir, and then we'd have to stand online at attention and say, it's the little things, sir, and we would scream that. We'd have to say, it's the little things, sir. Why? Because in the Marines, they care about all the little dumb things that no one should care about. How you lace your boots. It has to be a certain way. You'll get inspected for your boot laces. How you walk. I have gum. You shouldn't walk and chew gum. You can't walk and drink. There's certain things you can do. Um, How you salute, how you stand. I mean, how you sit. You have to have your feet at a 45-degree angle when you're sitting. Like, who cares? That's weird. 
But you have to be faithful in the little things. Because if you can't do that, they're not going to let you be a section leader. If you try to skate by or, or do something when no one's looking, you're going to get found out, and they're not going to trust you. So it's the little thing, sir. Just listen. So there's pitfalls in this, though, if we're thinking about it spiritually. Both legalism and work righteousness. So if we're looking to the law of Moses to save us, that's also not good. Or maybe if we're looking for great works like Elijah did, that's not going to work out either. Jesus said, many of you will come on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these great things? I listened, I obeyed. I did all these great miracles, and he said, depart from me, I never knew you. So we can't rely on that. So what's the spiritual truth in that, in listening? We should yearn to be faithful in the little things in this way. Thirst after righteousness and being faithful in the little things correctly. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then when telling a parable, he says, well done. And the master said to him, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I think we can take from those principles. And I think that's what listening is. That's what listening is. But how do we do this? You guys remember the IPO? Who can tell them to me? What's What's the I and the P and the O stand for? Okay, good. So I did a, now we got to, what does it stand for? So yeah, input is what? The word. The process is what? How would we process? The gospel. And the output is exercise of faith. That's right. And when we do this, we glorify the triune Godhead. It is a testimony of God himself. Listen, the word of God is the testimony of the Son, the word, is the medium by which the gospel takes root in your heart. And by the Father's, so we have the second person of the Trinity, the first person of the Trinity, the Father's grace, and the gospel will produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you. So we see the full expression of the triune Godhead in our lives when we do this. And then the second part of listening is to go. We all know the Great Commission. Jesus said, go make disciples. And then when asked what the greatest law is, what do he say? How do we, like, so, okay, I'm going to go. Then what's, what's the ethic? Love the Lord your God with all your heart mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does he say at the end of that? In Matthew 22, he says, On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. I told you, Moses and Elijah are sitting there pointing to Jesus. And then the voice says, listen to him. Okay. Last point here, because it's, it ends a little strangely. They were silent. They just saw this crazy transfiguration, and they were silent. Well, they weren't silent for long, and we see in 2 Peter 1, Peter records his experience of the transfiguration. He writes this in 2 Peter 1, 16-18. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, 
And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. So Peter eventually tells people about this, obviously. And after the resurrection, Peter then knew all the misconceptions he had about the Messiah, of course. It all made sense to him afterwards, and then he listened. He obeyed the command. So, what's the lesson for today? That Jesus is God, and we should listen to Him. That's it. That's the whole lesson. Jesus is God, therefore we should listen to Him. And to listen, we have to follow, and to follow, we go. And Jesus said right before this, He says, To be my disciple, one must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. That was right before the transfiguration. So that's what we want to do. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your Son, your glorious Son, full of grace and truth. We thank you for your mercy that you have on us. We thank you for your revealed word, Lord, just as a... a, a gracious act that you you still you deal with us in our in our in our worst, uh, Lord. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. What a lovely thing, Lord! I pray that your glory be reflected as it was in Moses's face in all of our lives, Lord, as we aim to follow you. I pray that we have good input, input of righteous things, input of the word, Lord, not input of the culture. I pray that when we process, it's not on, we don't lean on our own understanding, but we lean in on you, Lord, and your, your gospel. And then for output, Lord, I do pray that we listen and we go. And we thank you for your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.